Revelation chapter 1. Anytime anyone says that, you know that we're about to get into a whole lot of crazy, right? Um, when I think of uh, Revelation and my introduction to this book, uh, when, when I was a, a kid, you know, well, let me just say this. When you read Revelation, we are, we are not familiar with this type of literary genre anymore. And when I was a kid, uh, this book of Revelation was one that people would use to really just uh, as a tool to scare the life out of you. I I can remember as a kid, um, I would go to these, I wasn't a Christian, but I would go to these youth events that these local churches would put on. They would like rent out a gymnasium all night long or something, go like this YMCA and rent it all night long and, and let you just go crazy as kids. And I was a crazy kid. So I'm like, sure, I don't care who it's with. As long as I can go crazy all night long, I'm there. Right. And and a part of that, they would, they would always bring us to this room and share this gospel message where all it really was is they would show this video of some guy dying some horrible death and be like, you don't want to be like him, huh? Here's a verse from Revelation. You need Jesus. It's like, that, that was my introduction to the book of Revelation. A, a whole lot of crazy and scaring the life out of you. And, and when the world ends, the, the theme was you don't want to be left behind, right? And so I will say one of our goals this morning is to make sure no one is left behind, but we're not going to talk about it in, in the sense that maybe we're, we're used to hearing that phrase used. Um, but when we get to the book of Revelation, I think it is important to start off in chapter one. I'm just going to give us a summary of this book today uh, of understanding why it is here. And the reason we're going to end with this book is one, we're, we're going on a series together uh, on, on the theme of scripture. And we want to see the grand theme of God's story being told throughout all the Bible. Uh, we, we have the, the beautiful joy of seeing a book of literature, 66 manuscripts put together telling one massive theme that God has told throughout history. It is incredible how the Lord unfolds this for us, and it it works together in in one grand idea over a a huge time span that that we have opportunity to see how God has revealed himself. Beautiful story. And so if we weren't to end with Revelation, we would be amiss to how that story all ties together. Second is, uh, because this book is so unique, if you ever dive into it and want to understand it, uh, it, it helps to have a little bit of encouragement jumping into it. Because a lot of times you'll read this and be like, what, did, what, what just happened, right? Like, what is this? this? This is weird. Sometimes scary. I don't understand it. What's going on? And so when you, when you dive into the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, John lays out for us this picture of understanding of exactly what this book is. And so Revelation chapter one, verse one, it says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bond servants, the thing which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated by his angel to his bond servants, John. Let me just end right there and say this before we go a little little further, that the, the title that John gives to this book, where we get the book, is Revelation, right? And so the first thing you can do to show that you have uh, a familiarity with this book is to call it Revelation with no S, all right? This is not Revelations. This is one revelation, and that revelation is of Jesus, from Jesus to us, okay? And, and so this is the book of Revelation. This, this word in Greek literally means uh, apocalypse, and so that's where we get this idea of apocalyptic literature. And, and what that really means is it's this symbolic language that communicates to us a truth. And so John will cast these ideas of these certain visions or this beautiful uh, poetic language that, that figurative, figuratively represents something specific. And so uh, this apocalyptic literature, and by definition, what, what it means, this word apocalypse or revelation means it's this unveiling. What God is doing is he's, he's Peeling back this heavenly picture to reveal to us the goodness of Jesus in life circumstances. And I'm going to tell you why he does that in a minute. 
But, but he, he tells us, okay, this is a revelation, an unveiling. And then he gives us this thought that it must soon take place. And that phrase is important for us because it provides an interpretive help to understanding this book. When I've heard people talk about this, this book of Revelation, uh, oftentimes what I've found is that this book has become hijacked by paranoid, political, doomsday, conspiracy theory type people. And um, no doubt there is some political element to it when it talks about world leaders. But I don't think that that's God's primary intention to this book. God's primary intention isn't for you to get your predictions out and your charts already and to map out for everyone exactly what's happening. That, I mean, that, that could be a piece to understanding Revelation, but that is not God's primary point to this book. But what he says to us is that it must soon take place. And another thought I, w- I would throw there is that um, people will read this book or in our time setting today will read this book and you get to the end, you see these different world powers or leaders talked about and, and then people will say this. They'll be like, but there's no America. Oh my word, what happens to America? You know, there's this, this panic that this, this revelatory book when it peels back doesn't talk about America. And, and I would just say this, um, America is not mentioned because the first century people did not care. There is no America. Right? I mean, what, what John is saying in this chapter is this must soon take place. And what John has given us is this interpretive idea to the book of Revelation. Really, that transcends throughout all of Scripture. And what I mean by this is this, that when, when God writes a, a book of the Bible through his authors, it means something to the people there and then before it means something to us here and now. And if you don't take the time to understand what it meant to the people there and then... You'll, you'll make tremendous error in understanding what it means to us here and now. And so the reason when you read Revelation, America is not talked about. Maybe America does or doesn't exist. Who knows? It's not in Revelation. But the reason it's not in Revelation is because in the first century, no one cared about America. There was no America. They have a lot more going on that they're worried about than what exactly is going to happen in, in, in this century for people in America. Right? That's not even on their radar. And, and so when, when you read this book, just know the reason America is not talked about is, is because um, for the first century people going through this book, God is writing something for them there and now, there and then, before we get to the here and now. And, and, and it will pay huge dividends when you read a book like Revelation or any other book that might have some apocalyptic reading to it that's prophetic, even in, especially in the Old Testament. If you take time to understand the images that are communicated rather than jump to application. And what I mean by that is if you were to read through this book, I've heard people do this where multiple times I've heard people do this. They'll, they'll jump to like revelation, um, uh, chapter nine, where it talks about, uh, grasshoppers or locusts with the face of a man. And they'll immediately jump to the conclusion that those are helicopters. Right. And it's like, well, um, maybe I guess, but in the first century, no one knew what a helicopter was. Right. But rather, rather, if you just take time to look at the symbolic language that, that John is using, well, the locust or the grasshopper was a symbol into the Old Testament, like the book of Amos. And it was symbolic of a plague that took place. Or these locusts come through and they eat up all the land. And so to the Jew, that image has, has a purpose, has a meaning. And it's not, it's not rooted in some future picture. They have no idea what it's talking about. To the Jew, it meant something in the past. So when, when John's using that language, they could correctly connect it to something they had already experienced as to relate to what John is trying to explain in that moment. 
And so it's way, way more profitable to understand the symbolism to Jewish history than it is to just make the application in our terminology to today. Now, here's another one. Um, Revelation 19, uh, 14, verses 1, verse 9, it talks about the mark of the beast, right? Mark on your forehead and on your wrist. And then people uh, started flipping out in the last couple decades as computers got more popular. Talking about com- computer chips and the devil controlling those things. And, and maybe, maybe you will. But, but I, don't, I don't think that that's what Revelation's talking about. Right? There could be a, a tangible means by which the devil uses, right? But, but I think what it's saying is it's identifying for us what controls us. Because it talks about, in Revelation 14.1, it talks about the mark of God on us. In chapter 13, the same thing. That, that God's name could be written on our foreheads. And what it's actually referring to for the Jewish people is this idea of phylacteries. When, when the Jews were told to bind God's word on their wrists and on their foreheads. And Jews literally did that. And what it's identifying for us is who owns you, who controls you. Who is your life given towards? And so when you read the book of Revelation, you see this played out between these two different worlds at war. The the kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God. The city of Satan or the city of God. And so when it talks about the mark of the beast, it's not so you get all paranoid about computer chips. It's It's just simply saying what has control of your life. And so that's why I say when we look at these interpretive pictures of of Revelation, it's important just to understand what it's communicating from a Jewish context before we jump to the application because it can lead to all sorts of paranoia over things God never intended for us to get from this book. And so John's saying to us, okay, this must soon take place. And so he's given this idea that this is relevant for the people in the first century. This isn't just 21st century. This is relevant to where the people are today. And he says he sent and communicated by his angel to his bondservant John, whom testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blesses he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heeds the things which are written in it for this time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Let me just say this so I don't forget. The seven spirits is the Holy Spirit. Um, In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, there's uh, the spirit of God's described there. And there's a sevenfold ministry described as as what the spirit will have in this world. And and so John is referring to the spirit as the seven spirits. Seven in Revelation is also a number of completeness. But he's identifying the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of people here. When you look at this, John, in, in these next few verses, also gives us some, some interpretive understanding as to how, to how to read this book. When you read the Bible, the type of literary genre that you're engaging in matters because it tells you how you apply interpretive principles to passages of Scripture. It's different in how you interpret a parable versus how you interpret a letter. It's different in how you interpret a revelation or apocalyptic literature in terms of how you might interpret a letter or a gospel. But he also further says in verse 3 that this is a prophecy. So not only is it apocalyptic, it's prophetic. And then he says it's written to us, meaning it's, it is a, a letter. And John's encouragement for us as we consider this is that we heed the things that are in it. Meaning God doesn't want you to look at this and be intimidated by it and simply run away from it. But John is writing this for the church to be encouraged. And so what his desire is for the body of believers is to heed the things that are written in it. And I think it is completely okay to acknowledge when a book is hard. 
Revelation is not easy. A lot of what John writes is tied massively in Old Testament prophecy. And if you just pick up this book and start reading through it without an understanding of some prophetic books of the Old Testament, it makes this book so much harder. Even Peter said of the Apostle Paul in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, that Paul's writings are hard to understand. Even Daniel, who, who his, a lot of what Daniel says is borrowed tremendously in the book of Revelation. Daniel says multiple times in the book of Daniel, I don't understand, I don't understand, I don't understand. And God explains things to him. Even in chapter 12, when you get to the end of Daniel in verse 8, Daniel says again at the end of the book, I still don't understand. And so I, I think it's completely okay to acknowledge when things are hard. But at the same time, don't give up. Because this book is beautiful And here's an incredible thought. Out of all the theological topics that are discussed in Scripture, some theologians say the second coming of Christ is the most talked about doctrine in the Bible. This is huge for God's people. And while you study uh, this book of Revelation, what I I think is also important to know is um, to, to not... Be so dogmatic as to where you land here. And the, the reason I say is, like, sometimes we like to read this book for the entire purpose of playing out our predictions and charts and maps and, and exactly what we think about this book. Um, but, but let me just say this. Um, no one got Jesus' first coming right. And I don't want to be so arrogant as to propagate that I have every detail of Jesus' second coming correctly. When you read the Gospels and you see Jesus over and over again prophetically declared exactly how he's going to come, when he's going to live. I mean, Jesus even gave the date of his birth. And and people still missed him. And so when it comes to the first coming of Christ, if they miss the first coming of Christ, I'm not going to be so arrogant as to say, and this is how every detail goes in the second coming. Look, I have my stand, right? I I grew up in a traditionally in a premillennial, pre-tribulational teaching. I... I, um, you know, I, I think it's important to study Revelation, to look at these things. Um, but I, I don't want to sit here and say, look, when it comes to the deity of Jesus, that's a 10. Like on a, on a hill to die on, make that a 10 in your life. When it comes to pre- predicting exactly how a second coming is going to go, like make that more like a 2, right? Like definitely study this. Definitely, definitely. Look, I mean, the Bible makes a big deal about this. And we should, we should look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Right? But, but when it comes to the idea of, of calling or belittling other Christians because they might have a, stand, a different view than you. Like I, I remember one time I was at Liberty University and I listened to Tim, Hay, Tim LaHaye give a speech. Tim LaHaye wrote the Left Behind series. Tim LaHaye is giving a speech of which he dedicated a lot of money to Liberty University off of those books. And, and he helped build this student center. And during the speech, he said, you know, you wrote these books, and there's a lot of success, a lot of people like the books. But he says in the speech, this is a silly issue to divide over as Christians. And I'm sitting here thinking, man, the guy that wrote these books that Christians are reading <laughs> during this time period is saying this, right? Uh, I, I think that there's some important things to draw out from that. But I think, let me just say this, and I want to move on. I would far rather see a church hungry to know God's word and understand the Old Testament pictures that are illustrated in Revelation more than just simply laying out charts. Because if all you're interested in is laying out charts without understanding those things, it tells me you don't understand what Revelation is talking about anyway. And so what, what credence does that hold? And so when it comes to the idea of Revelation, um, taking time to just 
move through these images and appreciate what John is communicating is what this, the beauty of this book upholds. And, and so he says at the end of this, he's writing this to the seven churches. Now, let me just ask you this. Why seven? And why these churches? If you read beyond this and you see the churches that he's talking about and you think about the, the New Testament and the churches that the book of Revelation is written to, some of these churches, this is the only time you'll ever hear about them. Why these seven? They're not even the popular ones or the cool ones, man. Like some of them are, but why these seven? Well, if you look, if you ever look on a map where John is in the island of Patmos, I could have provided this for you, but what, what, on the island of Patmos, these churches sort of make a circle around where John's at. And rather than have eight, nine, ten churches, he chooses seven. And I think he chooses seven because seven is the number of completeness. Now, some people come to these churches and they say, well, it shows church ages. You know, throughout the ages, this is how different churches have responded to the Lord. And they try to fit into history the ages of churches and the way that they've responded. I reject that. I, I think that, you know, some people can figure that out and like to do that. I don't think that's what it is. I don't think John means to make it that complicated. The reason I say that is because a lot of times I see people say, well, it's talking about seven church ages. Um, they always get to the seventh church age and pretend like they're in that age, right? It's like this and the seventh age is our age where we are now. And then, and then all of a sudden a couple more hundred years pass and they're like, oh, we're out of that age. Okay, let's, let's redo our timeline, right? Here's what I think John's doing. He's saying, look, um, when you think about God's people, here's the typical way churches respond. And seven churches sort of cover the dynamic of how God's people might respond. And what's unique when you read about these churches, out of the seven, only two of them are praised. And the two that, that John lifts up are the ones that are going through persecution. When you go in a little bit further, John starts to share with us a little more as to why he's writing this book. He says, um, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was in the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, what John is acknowledging for the people when he's writing this book is that he's going through a hard time just like them. And you know what happens when you go through adversity? You want to rest your security in God. Right? When you see your friends losing their lives like John has, you really want to know your hope in Jesus is secure. And that's what the book of Revelation is. John is writing to the believers that are going through difficulty. And he's saying, and stay true. Because you win. And the reason you win is because Jesus wins. And let me peel back the picture from a heavenly perspective and show this to you. And what Revelation is, it's a, it's a worship book. It's a worship book for God's people in the midst of adversity to see the goodness of their God and how they are victorious in him. That's the point of this book. And so John is writing this to a, a persecuted church in, in the period of tribulation. And one of the other reasons I highlighted this is because I want to be um, sensitive to the idea of what tribulation represents to God's people. Because if you've grown up in certain theological circles and they come to Revelation, no doubt you might have heard they talk about this tribulation period. And, um, and talking about this tribulation period may even say to you that God's people will not be a part of the tribulation. And I, and I just want to be careful with terminology here. Because what Jesus definitely declared to his people is that we will go through tribulation, John 16, 33. All of us will have tribulation. John in this story is saying he, will, he is going through tribulation. If you follow Jesus, 
Sometimes there is a price to pay. When I think about brothers and sisters around the world that follow after Christ, Christians today are still losing their lives by, uh, by the thousands, tens of thousands every year. They are going through tribulation. What do they need? They need the hope that's secure in Jesus, right? Now, no doubt, when I, when I think about the, the book of Revelation, what the Bible makes amply clear, and I just want to point this out to you in Revelation chapter 6, um, Revelation chapter 6, verse 16. Let me read both of these verses, 15 and 16. God says something important here that I think is uh, helpful for us. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. That's talking about the Lord and from the wrath of the Lamb. So the lamb here is certainly Jesus, who was the lamb that took away the sins of the world. And so what the people here are saying is, hide us from the wrath of the lamb, right? And what he's talking about is it's bringing the wrath of the lamb on the unbelieving world. God's wrath is finally coming. Now, when you think in terms of revelation, what I think is important for God's people to know is that God's wrath will not be poured out on his church. And the reason I can confidently say that is because the church is Jesus' bride and Jesus is not going to beat up on his bride. And so when you, think, when you think about Revelation in terms of tribulation, I, I think it's important to acknowledge, look, we're not escaping tribulation as people because in following Jesus, the Bible promises we will go through tribulation. And the reason I, I, I want to say that is because I don't want to undermine what my other brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing around this world. Their faith in Jesus matters. There is tribulation that we will go through, Right? But one day, Jesus will return. And Jesus will bring his wrath against injustice. And that will not be brought against God's bride. Because we are his bride and Jesus doesn't beat up his bride. You know what I I find very intriguing in this section of scripture is that the unbelieving world recognizes who is bringing this wrath. And rather than repent... Rather than repent, even to the end of their life, rather than turn to Jesus, what do they say? Just let the rocks fall on us. They'd rather have rocks fall on them than turn to God. I know we think about the wrath of God. Sometimes we have a hard time with that. Like, especially in our Western world, we want grandpa loving Jesus, right? We want grandpa God who just loves us and he's all about love. And he just looks at you and says, aren't you so cutesy, right? Oh, you tickle your cheek. Oh, loving God. But, but I, I like to remind us when we talk about the, the wrath of God that... Um, if God has no justice, then his love is simply flattery and it's no good for you. What makes his love so incredible and so powerful is that he has the ability to execute his justice in order for you to experience that love. What good is love if someone just says, I love you and simply does nothing for you? Right? But the fact that God has justice declares to us that his love, as he promises it, can be executed. And so his wrath, if you're on the right side of his wrath, is a very comforting thing. In fact, I've said this to us before that I have a friend that um, experienced tremendous persecution. He was from the west side of Africa. Uh, and, and during this time, certain time period in the early 90s, um, his area of the world was persecuted for being Christian to the point where people came into their villages and cut off the arms and legs of people. If you're a Christian, they cut your arms and legs off. And a lot of them survived that way. Or even alive today, you can still look this up. Um, cut their arms and legs off. In his particular village, he, 
he had these men come into his, his town and into his house. His mother hid him up in the rafters. And he saw these men come in. And his mom and sisters were home. And from the rafters, he, he managed to live. This is how I know the story. He managed to live. But from the rafters, as he's hiding, he watches as these men rape his mom and his sisters and then kill them. And then he runs to the coast and ends up meeting a missionary and jumps on a ship, comes to America as a refugee and is in Bible college with me. The only way you can make sense of a world like that is the justice of God poured out. His love demonstrated in his justice. God's justice is a loving thing, right? In our Western world, sometimes the sanitation of our lives, um, we don't have time or take much time to think about that. But the Christians in Revelation who are losing their lives because of their faith, they're they're saying to themselves, what is this worth? What is this worth? And John's reminder to them in the midst of this tribulation is that the justice of God is coming. Stay true to Jesus. And so when you look to Revelation chapter 17, I'm going to just show these two two aspects for us. Revelation 17 and Revelation 21 is all I'm going to hit on and, and, and be done for the day. I'm going to do this very quickly. But it shows to us really the tale of two cities. And there's one leader in one aspect that's contrary to everything that Jesus is. And then there's Christ himself that ends the book of Revelation. In Revelation 17 verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke to me. So these seven bowls were of judgment. And John's saying, this angel came and spoke to me saying, and this is an interesting statement. If I just were to end here, it says, come here and I will show you the judgment of the greatest harlot who sits on many waters. Uh, <laughs> I just, sometimes when I read these passages, you know, I, I said to you interpretive, you got to understand what it means there and then before the here and now, I just picture myself as John in this verse. Like and an angel comes to me and says, everybody gather on the bus. We're all going to go look at the greatest harlot to ever live. I would be like, yeah. I don't know. I got a mom and a wife. I feel like I need some permission here. <laughs> I, I don't know. This probably is not a good, I'll sit this one out. You guys tell me what happens. Like, this is not a good idea, right? But, but uh, John jumps on, it says in this verse, and, and in verse two, it says, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and 10 horns. Verse 4, the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls and having her hand a golden cup full of abomination and of the unclean thing of her immorality. And on her forehead, a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And I'll read verse 4 in a minute. So beautiful picture, right? This is, you think about this, uh, you go... You leave this week and you, you talk to your friends about whether or not they want to come to ABC. What did you guys talk about at your church? You're the greatest prostitute ever. You know, typical Sunday. <laughs> I don't know if that'll work or not, but this is where we are today. And, and, and so it starts to the, the paint this picture of, of what she represents. And, and by the way, if you read the rest of this chapter, you'll see that, uh, that this angel interprets this vision for John, right? It tells exactly uh, how this this plays out and what these things represent. And for sure, for sure, it's definitely not boring, right? This story is not boring. Um, but this, this harlot on this beast represents something significant, which is a kingdom that's contrary uh, to the Lord. It, it tells us that this is Babylon. 
And that this idea, this picture of Babylon is, is ruling over the kingdoms of this world. And on this lady's name is, is written what this image is. And, and that the kingdoms of this world are intoxicated by her. That's, it's sort of like where they get their fix as their drug of choice. And the reason it uses this idea of, of prostitution is not because this passage is simply stuck on the idea of, of sexual immorality or sex. What it's saying is sin at its core is immorality. Sin is giving to something else what should have been given to God, right? And so that's what it's saying about the, the kingdoms of this world are intoxicated by her. They're, they're, they're mesmerized by this. And, and rather than give the glory to God for which they were created to do and to belong to, they give glory to this woman. And, and in verse 4, it really gives the appeal as to how they've been captivated here. It says that she is attractive, right? She's, she's laid in this... And this purple and gold and and pearls, how appealing she is to the people. In fact, so much so that when you get to verse 6, it tells us that that John gives her admiration. And the angel goes on and says, John, what are you doing? Like, John John reads right through this moment in verse 3. He says, he sees this woman, blasphemous names written all over. So John sees it for what it is. And by the time he gets to verse 6, John is even captivated by the immorality and the display of what this woman uh, brings and her attractiveness. Now, I don't think this is a literal woman. Right? But it's giving this idea that it's Lord, the rulers of this world. And when the rulers of this world go, so go the people beneath them. And so what it's identifying for us is Sin is fun for a season. In fact, some people say if you don't think sin is fun for a season, you're doing it wrong, right? But on the back end of this, there's also hell to pay. And for this lady, what what we learn, or by her image, what we learn is that seduction, not persecution, but seduction is what leads God's people, or leads people, I should say, to abandon Jesus, What's really ironic and sad about this story is when it describes this woman laid in, in, in gold and precious stones and pearls is that it, Revelation goes on and it describes heaven in chapter 21 verses 18 to 21 the same way. It's not just laid in it. The entire foundation is built out of it. It's as if to say we take the, the cheap way out, the quick fix, the immediate gratification for the greater glory that is to come. Why? Why? Why would we do that? If you read in, in chapter 16, one of the things that you find out about this lady is, ironically, she's even religious. Uh, you read these themes in, in the book of Revelation where it talks about the Antichrist. It talks about this idea of, of this leader who was and uh, who is no more and who is to come. Like it's going to be, he's going to be resurrected like Jesus. And there's even the false prophet. You see this, this, this worldview, this religious worldview taught that is counterintuitive to God. And, and what it is, is it, it creates this entire system that's really focused on man and what he wants and not giving glory to, to God. And this person on the back of the beast is, tells us, drunk with the blood of the saints. You think about the idea of this harlot leading this religious movement 
over all the kingdoms of the world. I think people do that today, right? And we've been doing it from the beginning of time where we create our own religion to make us feel better about ourselves. That's what Adam and Eve did all the way back in the Garden of Eden. They ran and they hid from God. They created a religion to cover up their sins with fig leaves to declare to God that God needs to love them and they obligate God based on what they do. But God doesn't work that way. And God is obligated to no man. And the way these religious systems work is you create enough for you to feel good about yourself so that you can create these other rules to do whatever it is that you want uh, to make you happy because truthfully it's always been about you or me or whoever creates religion. And you see that within our own culture that people will create things to have this moral position of authority over others so that they we can belittle other groups around them to the point that they'll even start to, to create their own uh, system of laws as to which they should be governed God, by, apart from God. And anyone that stands from God, they will just shame them to the point in this passage that they literally take their blood and that they're drinking from the blood of those who are killed. It's as if to... Ask us, right? What owns you? Or whose glory do you live for? Or where do you compromise in your own life? Like, where do we say, you know, I follow God 75% of the time, but then there's this one thing, you know, that I want, and it feels good to me, and so therefore I'll do that. At some point in our lives, God's not going to agree with everything that we do. In fact, he shouldn't. If, if the picture of your God agrees with everything that you do, here's where we need to be careful is to, not, is, is to assume that that is the true God. But rather, what we should question is if it's not simply a God that we've created in our own image to please ourselves. Walking with Jesus at some point comes in conflict with who I am because who I am isn't always aligned with him. And so the question becomes, where do I lay down my life? In this book of Revelation, what you see in 18 verse 4, even God's people are, are seduced. It says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive of her plagues. It's, it's to say in this tragic moment how sad it is when God's people look like the world. Now, when you read all this passage, let me just say this. I don't read a a section like this to say, okay, this is to guilt you for all the bad things you do, so do good things, right? This isn't a battle of good and bad. This is a battle of God's glory or not. I don't want you to leave out out of here and be a better person. I want you to leave out of here and be God's person. Religion is about being a better person. We belong to Jesus, And the picture here is a calling to surrender your life to him, right? And so John is laying this out. And if you you read on chapter 18 and 19, I don't have time to to read this, but as soon as you get to 18, it says, Oh, fallen, fallen is Babylon. You see this destruction of everything that Babylon is as if to say to us, Why live for that? Why make life about that? Or to say to the church that's being persecuted, Look, we understand what you're going through. And just remember, just remember, staying true to Jesus is what matters because in the end, that's the only thing that will matter. Everything else in this world will go away but your heart to Christ will endure for eternity. And so when you get to Revelation 21, 
This is where the grand story all comes together for us. He says in this, this theme of tying all the Bible, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth from the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and I will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will, will be among them and I will wipe away every tear from their eye and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away and he, has said, behold, I make all things new. A couple things just real quickly I want to say to you here. That when God makes the new heaven and new earth, the Greek word, what is explained here, isn't a blowing up of everything and making it, making it new again. The word is actually renewed. Meaning God doesn't waste anything. God's the, the greatest recycler to ever live. Like you think in your life, rather than destroy you and start over with someone else, what God does is he makes all things new in you from the inside out. He does the same thing with all of his creation. He doesn't blow it up and start it over. He refines it and renews it. It's like, kind of like restoring an old car that doesn't work anymore. God's taking the new heavens and earth. He's renewing it. And, and when he paints this picture for us of eternity, what he paints is uh, what I would say is the most uh, integrated picture of heaven, I think, in, in religion, period. You think of all the different views that people have of, of heaven, and God's picture really is the forever family. There are no, there's multiple heavens of different places and people in, in different existences. There's heaven, there's hell, and that's it. And what God created you for is to belong to him. And when you get to Revelation chapter 21, you see this. God collecting every tribe, tongue, language, and people, all of them together with him. This bride that's finally been adorned to meet Jesus face to face. And God is tabernacling, he's dwelling among them. And it tells us he wipes away all of those struggles in your life, all the pain, all the hardship, all the question, all the how, God, how are you going to work through all of this? He takes it all away and we have this massive release of all of that pressure of life and the goodness of his presence. What he's saying is, you're finally home. You're finally home. What you see in the beginning of Revelations, God, or in Genesis, God creates everything for his purpose. On the seventh day, he rests. And the intentions are for us to enjoy his presence forever. And what happens, man sins. And in that sin, there is unrest. And what our souls have longed for from the very beginning of days is peace. I want peace. It's as if to come to this passage and say, does your soul feel unsettled? John knows. John knows. The human soul, it always goes to this unsettling. This, in, in some of your life, you might find a little peace, but if you find it in one area, you're not going to have it in another. There's always just this unsettling in your life, and it longs for this peace. And John is saying, in the presence of God forevermore, you will have it. And in fact, it goes on from, uh, from this. It tells us he's making all things new in chapter 22. And this is the last verse I'm going to read to us. He says, And he showed me a river of water of life, clear as a crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its streets. On either side of the river was the tree of life. Where is he going back to? Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. The whole theme of Scripture coming together. 1,500 years from the time Genesis was written. Forty authors, three languages, three continents. One theme. Open up the beginning of your Bible and the first couple chapters, read about this tree. At the end of your Bible, last chapter, it's the garden. God's presence. 
the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding the fruit every month and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Look at that. Not the beast, right? No mark. Get your computer chip here. And, and, and there was no longer any night and there will not have in need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord will illuminate them and they, look at this, will reign forever and ever. When Adam and Eve were created, what did God say to them? Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth. They're ruling and reigning. What God says to us in his kingdom, together with him face to face, the ruling and reigning. And so what's John doing here? He's tying the entire Bible together for us that it makes sense. This grand story of God being told. And one of the last verses of, of Revelation, he says to us in chapter 22, God says, Jesus, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What he's saying to the church is, if the church asks the question, God, how do we know these things will be so? How do we know that we aren't to feel hopeless in everything that we're going through? Where can we rest ourselves? And here's what he tells us. Because in the beginning, I had say so. And as we've gone through time, I've had say so. And when it comes to the very end, it's all up to me. He encapsulates it all. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And all of these things are in his control. John's book of Revelation for us is a book of worship in the midst of hardship that we could see the goodness of God through it all. It's the tearing back into the spiritual world from the heavenly perspectives that we could see God's hand orchestrated throughout time and understand with Jesus in the end we win. And the question for us is, or statement I should say is if You're not ready. You're not ready for a second coming. If you haven't laid down your life towards him through his first coming. Jesus' first coming for us was an opportunity to find freedom from sin and guilt. Jesus died for us on the cross that we could find spiritual life in him that at his second coming, we don't run and hide and pray that rocks fall on us, but rather we lift our eyes to the goodness of this king for which our heart desires. Revelation is a book for us to encourage our soul to the goodness of this God who wants to make all things new and to wipe away every tear from your eye to look forward to the things written in Genesis because God's going to rewrite or renew those things in our lives that we could experience collectively together with our forever family. The goodness of this God. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.